from Sky News on the right to the ABC on the left. The Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. On the right of that line lies an evil empire of conservative Christians who deny climate change but believe in trickle-down economics. On the left lies a misguided and confused rabble who are supposed to help the working man but instead fight amongst themselves over identities. Only the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast takes the uncomfortable position of sitting astride the Iron Curtain to take aim at both sides. Only this podcast, and perhaps the bullshit filter, can explain the dire threats facing our civilization. I only wish that they could have traveled back in time to when I was conducting the war effort. With the benefit of their wise counsel, the war would have ended three years earlier. I would not have lost the election, and I would have invested heavily in technology stocks. (laughs) In any event, I implore you to listen to this very fine podcast. It is your duty. Welcome back, dear listener. This is a special episode of the podcast. Uh, You might recall that last week I mentioned that I'd like to start doing some interviews and I got contacted by a patron, Shay, who said that she had an idea and that she would like to interview me and put that forward. So sitting with me uh, across at a safe social distance is Shay. Hello, Shay. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Shay. So Shay um, sent me a list of questions, so they're not without notice, so I've got a bit of an idea. But, yes. um, well, Shay, why, what was the idea? Just explain to the listener who you are and why you wanted to do this in the first place before we get going. <laughs> well, um, the reason that I wanted to do it is that I, I sort of grew up as a kid, you know, six o'clock dinners with my parents and my three other siblings, and we discussed you know, politics and current affairs daily. And as I grew up, I noticed that that was like semi-unusual for other families. And um, I've always been interested and passionate about politics, but I've been a bit disenchanted the past few years. Um, And I've run a few initiatives of my own to try and make a difference to that. Um, And uh, at the height of my frustration, I typed into Spotify... Australian politics and there was your podcast Mm. and it's been um, really valuable. It's one of the things I look forward to is listening to your podcast and have you grapple with all of the current affairs. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, when I I heard that, you know, the only criteria that you needed was a woman, I thought I'm going to see what happens. It wasn't even a criteria. (laughs) It was just a sort of a a preference. But but, um, so, um, well, that's good. That's unusual. But your family was talking about news and politics at the dinner table, do you think? Yeah, So every was your, day. Was your, were your parents political or were they just no. average Aussies but just happened to like to um, talk about? My father's oh. Irish. Right. Um, he's an engineer. Mm. He was mm. a man of routine. Mm-hmm. So we'd sit down for dinner at 6 o'clock every evening and yep. my mum's Australian and 
they have different political views. So yeah, it was always a fun conversation. Yeah, yeah, oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. Well, I'm at your mercy to some extent. Yes. So you, uh, fire away with uh, with questions. Yep. All right. Well, I mean, I've I have written out a few questions here around mm. political. Mm. But I and I haven't run this past you, so we'll just see what you think. Mm. But I thought to break the ice, I might ask you a few questions about um, being a passenger on a plane. Oh, okay, yes, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you can tell a lot about a man by the way right. he conducts himself on a plane. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> and, this is, and do you want to tell the dear listener why you have expertise in this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, my daytime job, I'm a flight attendant. Right. Okay. So I thought it might be interesting. Okay. Well, this is a good experiment. So yeah. things you can learn about people. That's about, it. Really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so chicken or beef? Oh, um, is it stir fry or is it? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm at a wedding, I knew you'd probably go down that. Path. If I'm at a wedding and it's an alternate plate, I'll go beef. Yes, but, but if it's on a on an aeroplane, yes, I assume it's a stir fry curry thing. Yes, so um, probably still beef. But yeah, okay, all right, cool. All right. Um, any pet peeves <laughs> on the aeroplane? Yeah. Um, just if people are kicking the seat that I'm, you know, yes. the person behind kicks my seat, that's annoying. Yeah. But, um, but other than that, no, no. I'm, I'm not a big person. I yes. can't imagine how big people survive on planes. Yes. So for me, it's relatively easy. I'm not tall. I'm not big. I can fit comfortably. So, um, so I, I don't have major issues on planes. Very good. Mm. Very good. And do you have any plane stories? Um, do I have any plane stories? Mm, not that I can think of. No disaster stories Very good. or anything like that. No. Cool. Mm. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll dive into it, shall we? Mm. So my first question is, um, what is your vision for Australia? <sighs> vision for Australia. <sighs> Ideally... I would like, if I had to sum it up in a nutshell, it would be less American and more European in the sort mm. of stereotype view that I have of those ideas. So the realities might be different with individuals and yes. the reality might be different to what's in my mind. But uh, the future for Australia, I see us as importing a lot of Americanisms mm. in the last 30 years, especially since when John Howard was um, yes. Prime Minister, and this sort of love and respect of the military, this uh, Christian evangelical movement, um, the neoliberal, let's privatise everything, government mm. is so bad, every man for himself, um, greed is good. Um, if people are poor and unfortunate, it's because according to the prosperity gospel, God has not shined on them and there must be a reason for that. Like this, yes. So there's a nasty hard edge of selfishness yep. that I just don't like mm. and I see it as counterproductive ultimately. Like I yes. look for my great-great-grandchildren and the society they may sort of live in and if you just continue doing that path, um, as we're seeing with the coronavirus, you have, it's a dysfunctional society. Whereas my sort of um, uh, 
looking through rose-coloured glasses at the Scandinavian models, I'm sure they've got all sorts of issues, but Mm. you just have this sense of cooperation and an understanding that at different times uh, you've got to shelve your own personal interest and accept for the greater good certain things have to be done. So that would be kind of it in a nutshell, Mm. I think. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, and how long have you been advocating for secularism? Um, so I think, I think I voted at the 2013 election and looked at the ballot paper for the Senate and saw the secular party. And I had no idea that there was a thing existed until Mm. then. I think it was shortly after that, that I thought I would, I would investigate that group. Mm. And so... Went online, found out there was a secular party meetup group that met at the Brisbane City Council Library and popped along and met uh, Scott, the Velvet Glove, Paul, the 12th man, um, uh, Craig, Deep Throat. Yes. Um, a couple of other characters, uh, Joe and Anne and Frank Jordan, the, the yep. butterfly man. Um, so a few characters who have appeared in this podcast. Yes. Yeah, ah. that I met there. And... Um, we had really good discussions and we were all on the same page about um, wanting a more secular Australia. So it was a really good group, actually. Really yep. good conversations coming that. So um, that's what sort of started it. And Scott and I actually ran in the Senate for the Secular Party in 2016. I don't know if you've been I back in I went back enough. over a few episodes, okay. yeah. Right. And I was yeah. actually really pleased to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, How'd you go? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody, nobody, you've got no way of breaking through, no way of, of, of breaking through and becoming known mm. unless you do the most outrageous things. So yes, um, so basically, you know, we got four thousand votes, um, and you know, amongst the minor parties, we're one of the worst performers. You know, they're mm. all actually. Um, I printed it out before. I just thought I'd have a look. So we got four thousand votes, and well, Palmer United got four thousand eight hundred, but mm. um, things like. Um, um, Pirate Party got 10,000. The Cyclist Party got 19,000. Wow. Um, so um, Nick Xenophon, who's in South Australia, got 55,000. So, I mean, we were nowhere near um, making any impact at all. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I say to people that there's no point joining a minor party. You're, yes. you're beating your head up against a brick wall mm. unless you have got something incredibly unique that you can break through. So, like, as I understand it, you know, Nick Xenophon in South Australia is just um, relentless in his shameless self-promotion and, yes. and gimmicks to get himself in front of a camera. And, yes. Um, um, so, yeah, so... Or unless you've got a lot of money like a Clive Palmer might if he, um, you know, it's too hard. Yes. It's in this system. So yes. So that's, 
bit of experience taught me that. Yes. So there we go. Don't make the same mistake. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on mm. having a go, definitely. Yes. yes. Yep. Where you go. That's right. Mm. And, like, um, my favourite podcast you ever did was your Anzac Day one. All right, yes. Oh, and it was really beautiful and moving. Mm. Mm. Um, but what also um, impressed me about it mm. was that I hadn't really – been paying much attention to the pervasive nature of, you know, all the religious stuff that they put in ceremonies. Yes. I guess I'd sort of been casual about it and thought it's it adds ceremony or it adds solemnness. Mm. And that was the great thing about your Anzac Day um, mm. podcast. Mm. It didn't lose anything. Yeah. In fact, it really added. It was like really about mm. what Anzac Day was supposed to be about. So thanks mm. for that. Yeah, Anzac Day with its religious elements, um, you, you can hear the Lord's Prayer anywhere. It, mm. it, it actually detracts because it's not about Anzac Day. It's just no. It's just guff yes. and fill in. It's filling in time yes. that could be used for something so much more valuable. That's, yes. That kills me every yes. time. Yeah. Job well done anyway on yours. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Um, what experiences have shaped you? Yes, I did make some notes on this because there's, mm. there's a few actually. Uh, let me see. What did, um, yes, okay. Um, one would be I had a working class upbringing. Okay. So, um, so class shapes you. Like if you're yes. born into a wealthy family or, or circumstances of, different culture or something shapes you. Mine was very Aussie, very working class. Um, um, and I don't know, I think I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder that certain things were for people from a certain class to enjoy mm. in a weird way. Mm. Um, and I don't know how to explain it properly, but um, as if as if people like me weren't in couldn't get to certain places because that's just not what we did. Um, so, like, I never thought of becoming a doctor, for example. Yes. But if you grow up in a doctor's family, you would think about it. If yes. I'd have grown up in a doctor's family, I would have become a doctor, mm. for sure, mm. I reckon. Mm. Um, so, um, for me, like, my brother was a year and a half older he went to uni, so I went to uni as well. So I sort of followed him in that sense. Um, other things that shaped me was um, I grew up in an all-boys, I went to an all-boys high school, Christian Brothers, uh-huh. and sort of puberty was quite late for me. Uh-huh. So I had no idea about women at all <laughs> for a long, long time <laughs> and had no just no idea, just yeah. hopeless. And so uh, it took me quite a while to sort of work. Well, I was about to say I've worked women out. but I, that's, <laughs> that's dangerous territory. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> to get some understanding. But um, mm. so, so whereas I looked at my children who went to a co-ed high school and they had such normal relationships with the opposite sex. Yes. Right from the get-go and I just thought that's such a better system yes what they've been through than what I went through so yes. I'm really jealous of mm. the high school experience of my kids so 
So that shaped me, and but now I really um, appreciate women's company, for example. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if I go to a barbecue or if there's a dinner party or something, um, if the guys are hanging around the barbecue and the girls are out in the kitchen, I will try and go to the kitchen with the girls because. Yes. That's where the really good conversations are. <laughs> I can't believe what you what you talk about. <laughs> the guys would never be prepared to say. <laughs> and so, yeah, much very interesting. So yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. Other things are um, so I did the normal backpacking thing, but I didn't go to Europe. I went to North Central and South America for nine months. Um, um, sort of after doing a year of uni, I sort of took a break and did that. Uh, so that grew up a bit there. And I ended up, um, well, I, um, so I did law. Ended up doing, I started off doing accountancy, switched to law, mm-hmm. did my articles and uh, sort of about, I think it was only about three or four months after I finished articles that I left and started my own firm. Like that's wow, stupid, <laughs> just nuts. <laughs> and uh, that's hard to start a firm off from scratch yes. without a single client. Yes, and, um, and it, even as just as a suburban solicitor, it's a struggle. Like even for the best of them, it's you know you're competing against other solicitors, um, mm. and it's it can be a struggle. So um, don't think that all lawyers out there in suburbia are making a mozza. Like, yes. Um, they're not. And, and then I ended up with Crohn's disease. Oh, wow. Mm. So Crohn's disease is like ulcerative colitis. So it's a disease that attacks your, um, your bowel. So, yes. um, so I ended up having a major operation and lost uh, 20 centimetres of small bowel and about 10 centimetres of large bowel and okay. stitched up. And, and that was quite a shock for me. So yeah. that I was, at that point I was a partner in a firm. We'd moved to the, into the city um, um, and we had three or four employees or something like that and I was not enjoying it. It's, mm. it's really shitty job being mm. a solicitor and don't do it. There's another one. Don't run as an independent in, uh, or for a minor party and don't work for a law firm. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a law degree and work in the government or work yes. for a company but don't work in a law firm. Okay. That's, um, I could go on forever about that. Um, yes. And, um, and I just had this major operation and I thought, that's it, I'm done, I'm I'm going to sell everything. We're going to jump and take a caravan around Australia and whatever. And um, anyway, we didn't end up doing that. Ended up you know, starting another business of importing picture framing supplies and selling that. And um, and again, that was a struggle because sort of the picture framing industry was really contracting at that time. And so that had its moments and issues as well. So basically... I had a few hiccups along the way where I wasn't mm. particularly successful mm. that way. It was okay, but it's always a struggle. And I think that shaped me because I think I could have been a really arrogant asshole if everything had gone a different way. Like if I had stayed in the original firm, 
um, and worked my way up to a partner and everything went successfully. If I didn't get sick, I think I would have looked at people and gone, well, those people over there who aren't doing well, you know, they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And mm. I think I could have been quite right wing. Like I was actually an Anne Rand sort of follower mm. in my early days at uni before my conversion. So, <laughs> so I think that I those experiences um, knocked off some ugly edges that might have developed. So yeah, there you go. So, so lack of success ultimately made me a more rounded person. Yeah, like there it or you not, go. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So there you go. Mm. Yeah. All Um, Great. I think that leads us into the next question, actually. Mm. Top three accomplishments. Um, so, um, yeah, besides the usual having a wife and kids and, yeah, um, so, yeah, I was thinking about that and I, th- and I thought one of those three would be not turning out to be an asshole. Like, I think <laughs> yes. it's one of my top three ac- accomplishments. Despite Could have a gone either way. <laughs> but, but a, despite a potential predisposition, that was, yes. So I'm putting that down as one. Yep. Um, um, I mentioned in the uh, Anzac Day ceremony about the uh, death of my son, Leon, mm. and uh, that happened in 2011 and uh, that was a real shock. Mm. And, you know, people could easily spiral downwards into a really dark spot. Mm. So my wife and I didn't and our family didn't mm. and we held together and... Um, plenty of scar tissue there, but yes. um, the fact that we've sort of survived that mm. is in a, a intact is yes. an accomplishment. And and then I would say that kind of um, connected with this podcast would be like as an accomplishment. I kind of reinvented myself in my 50s. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it was about 2013 or 14 when I met the guys at the Secular Party, got involved in all these things, started to look at what was going on around the world. Really, up until then, I was too busy. Mm. And I can understand that people, um, you're tied up with trying to earn a living, provide for your family. You've got no time. Yes. And I sort of reached a point at 50 where the kids were sort of, independent, had a bit of time and and got into this and created the and then created the podcast and I guess um, people who knew me maybe 15 years ago might have seen hints of the person I am today, but I'd be mm. quite different. So mm. I think it is the so the moral of that is it is possible to reinvent yourself at a relatively late stage in life, I yes. would say, is what I've done to some extent. So mm. there you go. Mm. Mm. Great answers. Right. Um, I don't have any formal training interviewing people or podcasting. Mm. Mm-hmm. So this week uh, while I've been in isolation, uh, I hit up a few of my friends to see if I could practice on them. Oh, yes. And that has been one of the interesting things about that question is right. that it is some of those like um, personal suffering moments that are your greatest mm. accomplishments, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah, and we sometimes don't acknowledge that enough. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your answer. Thanks for your honesty. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what do you think the twelfth man in the velvet glove would say about you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, all good things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> velvet glove. Scott would say potentially that I think I surprise him sometimes with an angle on something. Like he sometimes would be like, "Oh God, what's he going to say now?" Or I would. And especially in the early days, I would say to Scott, you know, what do you think of this? And then he would say something worried about what I was going to say that would kind of contradict what he had just said that he didn't see coming. So he might say that I surprise him perhaps with arguments that come out that he wasn't seeing. Yes. Um, The 12th man would say that I'm far too sceptical about America and the media (laughs) and not sceptical enough about China. (laughs) Yes, I think he would. Um, But he would, uh, Paul would, um, I think, um, appreciates the podcast and what Mm. we've done and all the technical stuff and the conversations and he's quite, he really enjoys it. So he would... um, yeah, I think you just say it's it's good what we've done. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, what difference do you think it would make to have a rational secular party in government? Mm. Well, yeah. So not the secular party in government, but a, a government that is that is rational and secular. Yes. Um, which would be quite a reinvention of the current um, possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, if it so, the secular part, the biggest difference would be that schools would look completely different. Mm. So, at the moment, um, an enormous amount of federal government money goes into private schools, which are for the most part religious. Yes. Um, historically, that's not the case. Mm. Um, also, we've got school chaplains and we've got special religious instruction. And People don't understand that Australia is so out of whack with the rest of the world. This does not happen in other countries. You do not have religious chaplains in state schools. You mm. do not have Bible lessons in state schools, not even mm. in America. Yes. You do, you do not have the government funding private religious schools. Yes. It doesn't happen. Yes. So we are on this level like Americans are with gun control, like the, the rest of the world looks at America with gun control and goes, what are you doing? Don't you understand? That's completely wacko. Nobody mm. does that. Well, the rest of the world would look at our education system and say, what are you doing? That's wacko. Nobody does that. <laughs> so, so the secular side of a government would be really changing schools. They would mm. be completely different um, if it ever happened. The rational side... Um, would be, how oh, do I think about that? Um, um, I think just would have greater bullshit detectors up. We Truly rational would be looking and saying, trickle-down economics, that's bullshit. Mm. It's never worked. It doesn't work. It's complete bunkum. Mm. Um, other things like, our foreign affairs policy with America, uh, the inequality, um, CEO pay, just a whole bunch of things where we've got accepted paradigms that a rational 
government would say, uh, all those things you thought were the case, they're actually not the case. Mm. Um, we've been conned and here's the reality and we need to, going forward, do things a very different way. So mm. less, less um, believing of these sort of snake oil salesmen and actually looking at the facts, that would be what a rational government yes. would do, I think. Mm. Yep. Awesome. Um, while I was in isolation, I spent some time reading the Australian Constitution. So I think um, for the listeners out there, if you're a bit worried or concerned about things and um, you're having trouble sleeping, whip out the Australian Constitution because you'll be asleep in no what time. What prompted you to want to read the Australian Constitution? <laughs> well, this is one of the things that's um, with the Religious Discrimination Act. Right. Like it just baffles me that it's even got this far. Right. So okay. I thought, doesn't there have to be something in writing that says right. this is unnecessary? Right. And then as I have an interest in politics and it yeah. seems that, you know, even some of our – um, public figures aren't that familiar with the Constitution, it might be advantageous to yep, yep. have a read. Okay, good on you. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, yep. basically so just, you just put me to sleep. You just Googled the Constitution, <laughs> religion, and you got to Section 116 and started reading and you thought, yeah, well, okay. So, you, so yeah, so that leaves where am I? Yeah. I got off track here. Yep. Uh, yeah, so the Constitution states I need to read it or you think you're... I'll run through it. Will be, yeah. So, yeah, tell me why about it. Why doesn't the... Const- okay. Yeah. The Constitution and religion, how does it work? Yes. And why doesn't it stop what's going on? Yes. And if it stopped it in America, which is why they don't fund schools... Yes. So they don't spend all this money, they don't allow chaplains in. Obviously, they would if they could. There must be something in the Constitution that stops them. Yes. Correct, on all scores. Yes. Why is Australia different? Okay. So um, one word, three letters, A-N-Y, any. Is it that, that's the key difference. Basically, the, the US Constitution and our Section 116 are extremely close in wording, but we've inserted the word any, and that made a big difference. So the US Constitution First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Our section 116 says, the Commonwealth shall shall not make any law for establishing any religion. Mm. Now, they sound really similar. No law respecting an establishment of religion shall not make any law for establishing any religion. At first blush, you would think Section 116 is even stronger. Yes. You shall not make any law for establishing any religion. You would think it would be more encompassing. Yes. But our High Court decided no. By inserting the word any... What our forefathers were intending was that um, uh, any particular religion, as in we could not make a law that would create a state religion or that would favour one religion over another. Mm. So shall 
It was kind of like shall not make any law for establishing any particular religion is the way that they looked at it. And also um, Barwick took the view that it would have to be a law that solely dealt with that topic and nothing else. But anyway, the main thing is um, the word any and it's a crucial difference and that's why um, uh, our parliament is allowed to do what it's been doing simply because of one word, where on the face of it, you wouldn't think that's the case. So, um, so yeah, you know, you talked about a secular rational government. Mm. If you could get away with it, you would um, change the constitution and make it clear that it had to be secular. But that's not that's much easier said than done. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yep. So there you go. So that's why. Mm. Yep. So we can't just put the Religious Discrimination Act in the bin. You can't put it in the bin by virtue of the Constitution at least. Mm, yeah. To so, find another way. It's really interesting, um, the Constitution, that a guy called Luke Beck wrote a book about this section and how it came about historically and it's amazing, you know, they agonise over getting legislation passed now on a topic but in the early days when they were drafting the Constitution, they are obviously dealing with you know, hundreds of topics and some of them were really debated very quickly with very little um, examination. So mm. if you really want to make laws, uh, get in when a constitution is being framed in the first place. That's when, right. the, that's when the big ones are done. Mm. Mm. After that, you're just picking away at the edges and it's really difficult. Mm. Mm. Okay. That is not what I was expecting you to say. Right. I thought there was going to be like some treaty or some other legislation or. Right. So I am like, yeah. Disappointed. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no getting around I it. can't go marching in the Labor Party like, you just didn't read the Constitution, that's all. You just missed that bit. <laughs> My goodness. Mm. All right. So discussing constitution, we don't mm. actually have a constitutional right to free speech in Australia. Is that fair to say? Nothing um, nothing specific. And when I went to law school, the answer was a plain dead set no. Although in recent years, the High Court has kind of found an implied right of free speech. But that was really a stretch and it doesn't seem to have a wide application. But um, that was really a high court looking for something that probably wasn't wasn't there. So for all intents and purposes, no. Okay. So, yep. Well, we do value it though, Australians, don't you think? Um, yes, we do. Although there's, you know, there's lots of times when we, do, when we curtail it voluntarily. Mm. So... As I say to the 12th man, um, when you say, well, we all believe in free speech, well, we all believe also in stopping free speech in lots of occasions. So if you want to defame somebody, we have defamation laws that say, well, you might want to say that, but we're going to penalise you financially um, if you do. Um, mm. If you want to swear in certain areas, um, you could be considered a public nuisance and we'll stop you from doing that. Mm. Um, if you want to um, say something negligent, then you can be sued. Um, 
if you want to incite violence or whatever, we'll try and stop you. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I sometimes, yeah, free speech sometimes takes on this almost sacred sort of element um, for some people. Yes. But, um, and it's got its limits, but like there are natural limits to it. Yes. So, but, uh, yes, think, one of the things that comes to mind, and I'll just, you might have been getting to this, but I'll jump to it, um, in the discussions we have, Paul and I, about free speech and, and when to stop it, um, take, for example, with this religious discrimination bill, mm. and one of the things that the, the Don't Divide Us campaign and yes. other people are saying is, the religious discrimination bill will allow people like Israel Folau to say nasty things about people or will allow um, all sorts of organisations or businesses to say nasty things about gay people or or um, non-Christians or people of a different religion. And I think to a large extent Australians don't want to curtail that speech not so much because of the freedom of speech element, but for Australians it's a more of, oh, just um, develop a bit of a thick hide and just yes. what's it matter? Like yes. sticks and stones may break my bones. It's I think the motivation for Australians is more um, uh, grow up and wear it. It's not going to hurt you so much. Um, sure, it's not great to have people saying nasty things, but um, don't be sook about it. I think sort of some of the motivation. So yeah. I worry about the Don't Divide Us campaign concentrating so much on, oh, this religious discrimination bill, it's going to allow uh, um, Christians to admonish a single mother and tell her that she's going to burn in hell or something like that. Mm. Well, Okay, we we don't want nasty things said to gay kids that's going to potentially make them commit suicide or something like that, or inca- you know, cause them to. But there's a lot of this stuff where you sort of worry that that's not the key thing that most Australians are going to be sympathetic about. So, mm. um, so yeah, in terms of free speech, but um, um, you in your questions that you sent to me, you, you're talking about um. Well, we've been talking about anti-vaxxers and yes. um, should they have the right to sprout their ideas? Yeah, well, I think, we um, I think one of the interesting things about mm. your podcast is mm. you can hear it in the way that you actually frame your arguments. Mm. Like you can actually hear the way you've formed that argument about, you know, why you think such and such a thing. Yep. And that does seem to be kind of missing in a lot of, other yep. people's, yep. right? So, and and I, you know, I stand by the twelfth man, and he keeps saying free speech. Absolutely, say what you want. No, no, no. But like moving into having people have attention on the quality of their speech, yes. how they frame their arguments, how they put things together. Yes. Like, can you see that for the future, or is it going to go more into? Okay, so. Um... So the quality of speech and debate is an interesting one. Yes. Uh, so when I said earlier, don't become a lawyer and work in a law firm. You could yes. work in the government or you could work in a business. Um, that's because doing a law degree is good, 
Yes. As an excellent means of training the mind to think logically through abstract concepts and to work your way through um, little channels to see whether – because, you know, offences in criminal law, you know, did the person intend it? Did they have this particular action? You have a series of things that add up to that's an offence. Or Mm. in contract law, um, were these elements present? You have to structure your mind to categorise elements and decide whether those elements are in place or not, which often means one result or a different result. So you think quite well logically, you think well in the abstract and you look at the other person's point of view, what is the opposition going to say to counter that? So excellent training Mm. for thinking if you do a law degree. Yes. Terrible work environment (laughs) in a law firm. (laughs) So... um, so uh, so that certainly helps me mm. to propose different alternatives during the podcast and to try and um, frame things so people can see where we're heading. Uh, another part of that is, you know, I start the podcast often by saying, you know, welcome, blah, blah. This is a politics where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, mm-hmm. all the things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party. Yes. So I was really interested that your family talks about, talk yes. about because we're told, oh, don't talk about news and politics and sex and religion. Everyone will just get angry and, you know, um, well, if we never talk about them, if we don't practice, then the quality of our debate deteriorates. It's not like you can just stop talking about these abstract concepts Mm. and then suddenly switch on when you want to and be lucid and and coherent and be able to make an argument. It's not until – it's because on the podcast I talk about these things all the time that I've actually practised so that certain elements are kind of ingrained in me that I can work through those and then depending on the conversation, I might have to think about a new part. But two-thirds of what I've said, I've said ten times before. It makes mm. it a lot easier. Mm. So um, so the quality of our debate is really bad that people get – you can see it on Facebook comments and things like that. Yes. Although that's fraught with its own difficulties just because of the way it's set up. But even in one-on-one conversations, it's really difficult for people to to – Think and talk logically through moral issues. Mm. And I took the liberty. There's a book by um, Alistair <laughs> McIntyre called After Virtue. And um, I've, I've mentioned this one a couple of times. You've probably heard me say it. But um, he, he talks about this sort of um, an, an imaginary dystopian future. So, um, and I really like this. Um, it's very, works with this topic. So, Imagine that the natural sciences were to suffer the effects of a catastrophe. A series of environmental disasters are blamed by the general public on the scientists. Widespread riots occur, laboratories are burnt down, physicists are lynched, books and instruments are destroyed. Finally, a know-nothing political movement takes power and successfully abolishes science, teaching in schools and universities, imprisoning and executing the remaining scientists. Later, enlightened people seek to revive science, although they have largely forgotten what it was. But all they possess are fragments, a knowledge of experiments detached from any knowledge of the theoretical context which gave them significance. Mm. 
these fragments are re-embodied in a set of practices which go under the revived name of physics, chemistry and biology, although uh, adults possess only very partial knowledge. Um, so what he goes on to say is that what's the point of constructing this imaginary world inhabited by fictitious pseudoscientists? He says, the hypothesis which I wish to advance is that in the actual world which we inhabit, the language of morality is in the same state of grave disorder as the language of natural science in the imaginary world. Like we've lost our ability to talk about these concepts mm. and debate them. Yes. Um, that's the dystopian future <laughs> we're in because we can't talk about it. So because yeah. um, people get think they're going to get antsy. But you know what? Yes. I turn up at, you know, with friends and stuff and talk about these things and we have – Great, Great chats. Yes. Yes. So don't shy away from them. Like, yes. Um, if you're at a dinner party, if people have them anymore or a barbecue or whatever, then um, start off, kick off a conversation about should Israel Folau have been sacked or whatever and mm. see what people say and play the devil's advocate if you want to. But people love it. Yeah. yeah. If you actually give it a go. Totally. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Hmm. It can move the, you know, topic away to more interesting things, you know. Mm, mm. It's only so many times you can talk about married at first sight. That's right. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's so banal. <laughs> That's exactly. But you've. Yeah. All righty. So did we want to, did you want to talk about the influences? Are you an influencer? Uh, um, so am I an influencer? No. No. <laughs> if I'm lucky, 500 people will listen to this podcast. So each episode. So, um, and that's uh, very small in the scheme of things, really. Um, actually, very few people actually have any real influence. The mm. power in our society is so concentrated that. Um, very few people have any real influence. So mm. I was thinking about this and I thought, um, like your average backbench MP, let's, let's do a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of influence with 10 being the highest. An, an average backbench MP might have an influence index of 1, for example. Mm. Like um, if you were a left-leaning wet liberal... <laughs> backbench MP, if there's such a thing anymore, <laughs> Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg are not going to pay attention to you. That's right. And they're going to be telling the power broker in your state to get rid of you at the first opportunity. Like, yes. You will not have an influence in a real decision that's made. So even an MP, yes, uh, none. Um, if you're... Um, uh, if you're more of an outer cabinet... You might have an influence of two or three. Mm. Um, party power brokers, guys who decide who's going to be on the ticket in this electorate, who's going to be in the Senate in the number one position, mm. those guys have influence mm. because they can pop people into positions with a known ideology and um, and knowing that they'll be voting and making a change. So they've got influence give them yes. a seven or something like that yep um 
in a cabinet, you know, your your main sort of treasurer, finance minister, and um, the, the bigger portfolios, where they're actually in meetings and could sway the prime minister. Uh, yes, they have influence. Um, odd characters like um, Pastor Brian Houston of Hillsong. I suspect you could put him up with being a cabinet member. Yes. In terms of influence. Yes. He would get to sit down with Scott Morrison yes. and say, you realise, um, Scott, that what we really need here is this, this and this. Mm. And we'll have a big sway on him. Like, he's yes. got influence. Yes. Um, um, big donors, Gina Reinhardt, Tiggy yes. Forrest, give them a seven or eight as well. Yes. The Prime Minister, give him a nine. Yes. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, give him a 10. Yes. <laughs> because, because he owns all the media. That's right. Well, so much of it that um, he sets the agenda. He can influence more people um, than, and he can influence the Prime Minister. Yes. So, um, so yeah, in the scheme of things, um, very little influence in in talking to 500 people. But mm. um, you do what you do and, you know, I'm doing it because I enjoy it. It's fun. Yes. Um, maybe. Um, well, I'll sort of move on to, I don't know if I'll put it in here or not, but um, you keep going. You ask your question. I'll, I'll Actually, no, I'll go on to it. If I was yep. to have influence, the only – if I was to have influence, how would I achieve influence? It would be through creating something that lasts longer than me. Mm. So it would be an organisation that keeps going without me that builds into something. So, you know, when we talk about the Christians and what they're up to, this whole idea of dominionism, are you familiar with dominionism? No. Right. Google Dominionism. Okay. Right now or later? No, later. Will I still be able to follow it's, this? It's scary. <laughs> like basically it's again out of the United States and it's basically the idea that that Christians need to rule the world. Mm. It sounds like a conspiracy. Mm. But it's effectively where they said, you know, we need to rule politics, education, media, and, and I think there were seven other, there was a total of seven heads of, even the arts was one of them. And basically we need our people in the top positions in these fields in order for Christianity to rule America. And they've exported that around the world, this idea of dominionism. So, um, so they take a long-term view where they um, they take young people and, uh, for example, Christian leaders that they see around the country, they invite them to camps mm. and they look around and they say, who's the really bright ones here? Okay, you can go to Congress and spend a week as an unpaid intern working for this congressman or, or whatever, mm -hmm. get a taste for seeing what's going, there's a kindle of fire in you, okay, we'll then put you in a leadership position of this sub-branch out here. And and they they are on the lookout for young up-and-coming um, leaders 
um, through camps and whatnot that they then place with um, congressmen as their aides and stuff like that. Mm. And that's how people get into these positions is they start in junior roles and then they manage to get selected themselves. Yes. And so the whole idea of seeding is that you find young people and put them in at the lower levels mm-hmm. and encourage them and then um, 30 years later your flowers are blooming. Yes. <laughs> we need secular, rational, dominionist seeding. Yes, you do. <laughs> we, we need a program that gets young people, finds the bright ones and says, don't yes. worry about this religious mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> Here's what's going on. Yes. We'll help you. Um, mm. We'll inspire you. We'll connect you with other people. Mm. Um and put a fire in your belly for this action. And, yes. And we'll also, we'll get you a, a spot working for this politician if that's what you want to do. Or we know somebody in that field that you're interested in, you know. So, yes. Um, so that's the, the uh, sort of secular movement mm. has to take a long-term view of, of seeding and educating young people Um and trying to um, and work in the corridors of power, getting those people to join political parties to yes. get to get power. So, if I was to have any influence in the future, it would only be through helping create something like that. Mm. So, um, I've long held a sort of a thought. I've read about these uh, secular confirmation ceremonies. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. back a few episodes. Yeah, so I that was an in, interesting idea. in some European countries. They do these citizenship ceremonies mm. and basically it's all secular and um, they just take young people who are ready to go to university, um, that sort of stage of life, and just give them the nuts and bolts of a few things they need to know about life, yep. um, like uh, media literacy, like who owns this media? It's therefore probably biased in this way. How do you counteract that bias? Um other interesting things like go to a museum and look at art and say, how should you look at art? How do mm. people look at art? Like just a bunch of different life skills. Yeah. Um, that would be interesting to do if, mm. uh, if there was a wealthy benefactor out there somewhere. So mm. that's um, that's my thoughts on influence and mm. power. Mm. Mm. Cool. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess. Well, this I'm not sure that this really links, but it's mm. the next question, so I'll mm. hit, hit you with it. Yep. So uh, this year we've seen a number of inquiries. Mm. So obviously in principle it's fine for politicians to launch inquiries, seek mm. facts and alternate perspectives, but the ones we've had this year don't seem to be constructive or accomplish a whole lot. What are your views? So... Um- uh, so the inquiries look. Say, for example, with voluntary assisted dying, there's yes. there's a parliamentary inquiry yes. into voluntary assisted dying, where they're basically taking submissions from the public, mm-hmm. traveling around the state, um, letting people have their say. Mm-hmm. They're looking at legislation that's been passed in other states and. Um, and then trying to come up with 
what would be, you know, the best ideas from all over and keeping those and and then coming up with a recommendation. Yep. Perfect. Like yes. all good. Like a parliamentary yes. inquiry into voluntary assisted dying is how the system should work. Yes. So that sort of inquiry is good. Um, if it's an inquiry where there's been some skullduggery as mm. to whether a politician's done something wrong or not and an inquiry is held, you know, uh, most of the time a lot of those things are just uh, shelving it so that it loses its media heat and six yes. months later they can say, oh, we had the inquiry and they found that there was no cause for alarm and please everybody forget about it. But, you know, it's, it's, that sort of inquiry, obviously, obviously, if it's not an independent body hearing it, complete waste of time. Yes, just the cover up. Yeah. Other inquiry, I just thought about one, um, and some of these are genuine. But Fitzgerald, Ross Fitzgerald, there was a famous Fitzgerald inquiry in yes. Royal Commission in Queensland yes. at the end Wait. of the Joe Bjelke Peterson era, yeah. which looked into corruption. Mm. Um, did a great job, mm. did too good a job because afterwards everybody thought, oh, the solution is a, is a royal commission. Yes. So because the Fitzgerald inquiry was so successful, yes, he really found out all the problems, came out with some recommendations that seemed to be correct. Even before he'd announced them, the government said, whatever Fitzgerald recommends, <coughs> we'll accept it. And, and that was okay in that instance, mm. but it then became a template. Well, oh, if there's this problem, we'll just send it off to a Royal Commission and, and um, uh, at some point still politicians need to take control and say, well, give us your report. Okay, make your recommendations, but we still have to make up our own minds as to what is right and wrong. But Yes. You know, it's... Um, so I guess they with the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse. Yes. Clearly that's a good idea yes. for that inquiry. Um, and they would have made recommendations. Um, it's, you know, part of the problem is, I'll sort of lean into a slightly different area, is it's too hard for your average Joe to keep track of all this. Yes. Like how do you scour the newspapers and keep up to date with all of these things sufficiently that you can, A, overcome the bias of whatever media you're reading and, mm. B, just the time involved in getting across the detail and understanding it and, yeah. and C, thinking through the arguments and the fors and against if you haven't been having dinner parties where you're allowed to debate and think about things <laughs> yes. like that. So one of the aims of the podcast really is for the busy person out there who doesn't have time to think, I'm prepared to do your thinking for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, 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 and, and that's why Paul's there to provide the contrary view on some things <laughs> and so you're not just getting what I think. But at least uh, here's what I think. I've read this. To some extent, here's the counter-argument, but ignore that because it's the way you, you know – and take into account all of my biases or whatever, but it is meant to be a bit of a wrap of what's happened around yes. the world so that you don't have to and yes. um, so that you could uh, stand around the figurative water cooler on a Monday morning with your colleagues and 
and know what's going on. So, yes. um, because it is hard to keep track of all yes. these things. Like it's time consuming. Yes. Yeah. So as I was saying to you earlier, like I'm spending two or th- two hours a day at least plowing through stuff, reading constantly, yes. looking through stuff, and and then another big block of hours on the weekend and then the actual mm. podcast on the Tuesday night. So it's quite time consuming. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Well, thanks for the work yes. you do. Yep. Well, that's no problem. It's <laughs> great. Well, and, uh, do my thinking and, for me. Yeah. And, and obviously I do it because I am just um, fanatical about it. And yes. And so for me it's not work as such. Mm. I actually enjoy it. And so mm. the minute it becomes work, I'll probably stop. But, okay. um but, yeah, so far the fire in the belly is still going. Yes. Um, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> mm. All righty. Oh, yeah. And then just do you think we can build good policy without inquiries? Do you ever think like people yeah. just go out and risk it and suggest things and see how they go? Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course. Of course you could. Something like the assisted dying thing, that's one that I can genuinely see you need to – let people have their say. Mm. Obviously the Christian element is going to be against it mm. and you really need to have a forum where they can provide their submissions and they can feel like they've had their say. Yes. So certain things do require a level of con- community consultation. Yes. Other things, no. Like you could prior to an election say, if I get elected, then I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Yes. And I'm not going to hold an inquiry about it. No. I'm just going to do it. Yes. Vote for me or not. So, yes. Um, and there are other things where you would say, um, uh, and, and, you know, that, and you could even do that with voluntary assisted dying. It, it depends. Our calibre of a politician is unable to sell a story or mm. they don't have ideas anymore, except on the right they do have an agenda, which mm. is lower taxes um, uh, and, and, and basically less government, lower taxes, and if we have to give religion more privileges as part of a deal, then we'll do that, conservative value. Mm. On the left, they've really lost their way because mm. they have got caught up in identity politics where they have... Um, it's it's like permanently watching um, an episode of what's that show on ABC just prior to the seven o'clock news? Um, oh, I can't remember now. But they are so caught up in identity and what it means for our minority communities, and and they've lost track of the fact that um, you know the left should be looking after the poor and the disadvantaged, no matter what their colour or their Mm. sex or their sexual orientation, like they're just the disadvantaged, but they get bound up in in identity and everything's referred back to that. So (laughs) um, so on the left when they get into power, they kind of don't know what to do because they've they've lost the thought of taking on neoliberalism. Yes. They've they've lost the thought of taking on... um, this idea that uh, you've got to sell all of your public assets, they're not prepared to fight because they're not prepared to fight and say, you know what, if we get in, we're going to put up taxes. 
on corporations. Mm. Those tax cuts that the Liberals put in, uh, we're going to reverse them and we're going to use the money on these things because yes. we need a civilization. Yes. Um, they're too scared to say these things because mm. they've lost, they feel they can't sway people. So when the yes. left gets in, it doesn't know what to do except cling on desperately for yes. power, maybe do some things on climate change if it can, um, but really fundamental things. So mm. uh, so it comes down to the, the calibre of people that are actually in parliament mm. are really poor, really these are not our our brightest and sharpest and no. most and our best people. No. So I've created the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index where I basically look and see what religion are our politicians. Yes. So as part of that, I have to Google every politician and see what they might have said about religion, admitting to being one or not. Yes. A member of one or not. And it is mind-boggling how many of these people you can Google their name and there's nothing Mm-mm. on them, nothing. Mm. All they've ever done is been a staffer in a union who got pre-selected and is now a member of parliament Yes, without anything of any consequence mm-hmm. having been done mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the calibre of people is really poor and... As I said on the podcast, um, the only solution is people have to start joining these political parties and agitating from within. If you're not within, nothing will happen. They will ignore you. even They'll ignore you until you get to the top. That's right. So agitate and and support people at the top who match your views Mm -hmm. until you can work your way up to the top and do it yourself. Um, because these guys like Morrison and Frydenberg are ideologically committed. They're, they're not interested in our views. They, no. they dismiss them out of hand. Yes. There's, there's no changing them. Yes. Um, you know, this coronavirus was so dramatic and so yes. just cataclysmic, the potential for disaster, yes. that they were forced to do something that they would that's never right. have contemplated otherwise. That's but right. That's a big thing to change them. Yes. That's the only thing yes. that could possibly change these guys. <laughs> that's right. Was the thought of our hospitals being totally overrun with yes. dead and dying coronavirus yes. victims. That, that's, what, that's what it took. That's what it took. Yeah. So without that, um, would never have happened. Yes. So... Um, yeah, so desperate. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's gloomy. It's sort of. I know it sounds a bit gloomy, but the idea is you've got to um, approach it with a bit of fun. I think if mm. you if you go in to these things, you decide you're going to join the Labor Party or heaven forbid the Liberal Party or the yes. Nationals or something. Yes. Don't be too. Um, Yes. Gonna get in there and I'm gonna get this done and gonna be really pissed <laughs> if this right. doesn't happen. And you gotta to have to be a little bit fatalistic and a yes. little bit of, well, let's go in and have some fun, meet some interesting people, That's let's right. make some decisions, but let's not yes. put our entire ego on the line. No. Because we'll just potentially be crushed. So yes. put up some defenses. Yes. Um and um and have some fun with it if you can to make it enjoyable you can stay the distance Mm. um yeah so um 
So there, I'll just briefly mention that I've been talking to some people about uh, Satanism. Yes. So, um, so in my view, we need more satanic action in this country. Yes. Because it's been proven in America that uh, where there's been Christian privilege, uh, where they might be saying prayers before Parliament, mm-hmm. or they might be getting, uh, you know, certain benefits. If a satanic group comes along and says, well, we want the same rights, we want a satanic invocation, mm. then what they'll do is they will, they will stop doing prayers and invocations completely rather than have satanic people doing it. Yes. So to my mind, the school chaplaincy and the special religious instruction are absolutely ideal for satanic action. <laughs> Can you imagine... <laughs> A Satan is turning up. It is fun to imagine. It as a is. school chaplain somewhere <laughs> and what they would be saying. And and at that point they would seriously consider yes. we need to cancel this program rather than having Satanists right. running around. And um, they can't pass a law that says it is only Christians who can yes. do this. If you're going to let one religion in, you've got to let them all. And yes. Satanism is a legitimate religion, unlike... Yes. Pastafarians. Yes. So I really see that as a as a as a potential for drawing attention to um, the issue, and the same with um, special religious instruction classes, where people basically go in to do Bible studies in our mm. state schools, mm. and the rest of the class are not allowed to do any substantive work. They have to go into a different room while a Bible lesson is held, and um, in theory, a Satanist could come along and say, right, I'm, there's two, um, there's one satanic kid in this class and um, I'll just turn that Siri off. Hang on. Yeah, no worries. Must, Siri must be triggered to work on Satanism, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know what happened there. But um, so, yeah, if there's one satanic kid in the class. Yep. Um, then it, it could literally be his parent. He says, oh, I'm doing a Satanist class for all of the Satanists in the school. And, yes. and, and that one kid could be taught Satanic theology mm. and the rest of the class will have to be out um, just doing drawing or art or something mm. while they're waiting. And if enough people do that and enough attention is paid, they would say, you know what, maybe this isn't a good idea, having these religious instruction classes in state schools. So if, yes. So, um, yes, I'm talking to some people about that and and I'm sort of saying, you know, we're looking at doing some videos and things and one of the key parts of that is we've got to have fun. Like we've got yes. to just um, – it's time-consuming and whatnot, but we've got to make it so that it's fun and be mm. prepared to laugh and have fun about it so you can keep doing it. So yes. I think that's important. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Awesome. That would, that would be my advice for any activists out there would yep. be to try and um, don't take on too much, just do what's comfortable and fun. Cool. There we go. Yeah. And is that where you see the podcast going next, exploring uh, that, or is that going to be separate? Um, that, that'll be part of it, I yep. think. Um, I really like the idea of video. Mm-hmm. So I've liked the live stream yes. and I like – the idea of being able to say some of these things on video in an entertaining way and having them 
be distributed that way because yes, seems to me young people today don't right. read much, nope. and if they're going to find out about something, a, a viral meme or video, yes, is the best way. So, um, so I would like to do more video stuff, mm. um, but again, it's all time and yes, all the rest of it. So small steps and do it, it as we can. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the looking in the next year or so is short videos, some of them satanic stuff. Um, actually, I'll explain this one to you. Um, yeah. Did you, did you watch it? I did. I did. Okay. I, did. So I don't want to give it away. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll tell a little I thought bit. it was so good. You did? Yeah, I did. Okay. So I think, um, what's the fellow's name who helped Robin. you? I think he's right. I think yeah. there was like, he was like, if we were actually actors, it would be hilarious, yes. you know, like. Yeah. There is a little bit of refining to do, but, yeah, yeah I okay. thought it was so great. I sent you a test video that we're yes. doing and here's the premise of the video is, <laughs> is well, we're all on Zoom conferences now, so we're yes. all used to having to Zoom with our work colleagues and so this is one where Satan, played by myself, um, is, um, is sort of like a businessman who is a bit frustrated that Satanism is not selling as well as it should and he's actually... Just a straightforward guy. He's a good guy. He's, you know, he's basically been subjected to a bad PR campaign by Christians and other religions. And he's just trying to market um, a religion. And he has a weekly Zoom meeting with Robin, who is uh, at, at the Noosa Temple of Satan. And they basically discuss their plans for the week and what's happened and what their uh, proposals are to get things done. And um, uh, so, so, that's the sort of premise of the of the video, and I think it could work. So yes, we're going to work with some people on that and try and make that entertaining. So mm. uh, look out for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. Mm. All right. Cool. Well, that pretty much concludes it. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I don't think I wanted to say anything else other than um, thanks to the people who are the patrons. So. Um, so I subscribe to lots of different um, news outlets and all those subscriptions cost money and um, the podcast website and the hosting of the podcast and the streaming software and all that sort of stuff um, all adds up. So it is nice if people are patrons. So thanks for that. Uh, thank you, Jay, for signing on. So thank you to the patrons out there who support and um, – yeah, the people who send comments and who join the chat room during the during the live stream, um, that's all good fun. I really like that sense of community that is kind of developing, that we've got people that we've never met but who chime in with different things. So, so that's nice. So don't be afraid to say hello if you're out there and you like the podcast and interact with us is what I would say. Helps keep us going, yeah. All right. Great. Right, Shay. Thanks. thanks for your time. Thanks for that. I hope the listeners enjoyed that. Um, we'll have another podcast next week. Okay. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> now, a matter of great importance has been brought to my attention. I speak, of course, of the generous contributions made by the patrons of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. These fine men and women have sacrificed so much for their countrymen. Never before in the field of human conflict have so many 
owed so much to so few. To those of you who are not yet patrons, I say this. Give generously of yourself. Give until you can honestly say, I have nothing left to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. <clears throat> Let me see. What is the time? Ah, 10 a.m. Now, where's my whiskey and cigars? <laughs> well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.